flicks on the stars all along the highway. She's got a liquid crystal compass, picture book of the rivers under the Sahara. Hey, welcome to Roughcast. My name is Jim Mantis. Thank you very much for listening to our show. We're happy to have you here. We're in the middle of our live album series. We're going through every Rush live album in chronological order. And we're having a lot of fun doing it. Last week we talked about a show of hands from the late 80s. And we covered everything we could think to talk about regarding that album, which is what we're doing for every album on each episode. Um... We had some people kind of clear some things up. Sean Barrett uh, emailed us, and you can email us too whenever you like at rushcast2112 at gmail.com. Sean says, I had heard they didn't have the correct rights locked down to use the B&W, black and white, movie footage, which was included on Laserdisc. They had to remove it from or for the DVD release. So maybe some rights issues happening on Lock and Key for a show of hands. Uh, thank you, Sean. By the way, if you want to be on our mailing list, which you should, send me an email. I'm, I'm going to hopefully today send an email out to everybody that's already said they want to be on the list just to let them know that they're on. But if you've emailed me and say and said you want to be on, I've, I've marked you down and I've got you. But after the live album series, the show's going to be a little, slightly different format. It's going to be more user-based, um, meaning, or listener-based. That's you guys. So I'm going to have a mailing list that I can contact you guys and communicate with you to kind of plan for each episode. So you should you should want to be a part of that list. It'll be a lot of fun. Send me an email and let me know you want in on that. Today we're talking about different stages from the late 90s the next live album on the list uh what a weird album just in terms of its release it being released during the hiatus um it being from not only two different tours uh but three different tours and one being extremely far removed and just uh, a, a kind of a diverse collection of songs even on the the two discs that are from the 90s to help me talk about this super cool live album we're talking with founder co-founder i'll take some of the credit co-founder of the hold your fire support group jeff garrett how's it going man pretty good good to be back or tell everybody or remind everybody where you are calling from I'm calling from Columbia, South America, where I'm uh, an English teacher and an English professor at the university here. And uh, I've been living here for three years now, but originally I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. Jeff's been on the show uh, uh, several times now, and it's good to hear from you again, man. Thanks for being here. Thanks a lot. Uh, Joining Jeff and I is Dave Hoffheinz. You'll remember Dave from the trivia series from earlier this summer. How you doing, Dave? Good, Jay. How are you? I'm good. It's good to hear from you again. Where are you calling from? I am calling from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, it's nice to hear your voice again, and I'm happy that you were. Yeah, I'm happy you both volunteered to do this album. What was it about this live album? I'll start with Dave. Uh, why? Why different stages for you? Uh, this was actually my first, and it turns out that Jeff and I are in the same boat here. This was actually my first Rush concert that I was able to attend. Um, I was in college at this time, and it just never worked out before this. The counterparts tour, I was a little bit too young. Um, and same with uh, you know previous tours, I, it just never worked out. So this was actually the first time that I was able to see uh, Rush live. It was this evening with Rush tour. Um, and this was, you know, such a weird time for the band, but this was my, my first, uh, concert that I was able to go to. So it sort of holds a special place for me. So Jeff, this is a weird album. Again, I say weird because it's, it's not as cut and dry as a lot of the other live albums. Uh, we, I guess we can kind of consider this a test for echo album, right? We have to kind of lump it together with test, I think, because the majority of the material is from that that era, that tour. Uh, is Test for Echo uh, an album that you 
enjoy the material from that studio record because you like this album or because you experienced this tour first? Yes, uh, I have a similar experience to Dave because this was also the first tour that I uh, attended. My first show was in uh, October of 1996 in Dayton. And so the uh, Test for Echo came out uh, kind of right when I was starting out as a fan. Um, I had been exposed to uh, uh, Chronicles, Rush Chronicles, the compilation album, and I was kind of just, you know, still exploring their material when when Test for Echo came out. And um, for me, this, uh, you know, different stages uh, is kind of like a souvenir of my uh, my first Rush tour. Um, I also attended the second leg of the tour in uh, Cincinnati in, uh, on June 4th, 1997. So um, for me, it's like having a, you know, like a record of, of that experience, which I get to kind of relive you know, over and over. So it definitely has a, a special place for me. What is it like? Tell me one thing, maybe two things that you kind of characterize this live album as. Like, like is it... Is it song choice? Is it, um, you know, the t- the guitar tone? Is it the uh, the drum tone? What is it about different stages for you? When I say different stages, Dave, what's the first thing you think of? Uh, for me personally, I think it's uh, it, it to me this is a perfect sort of mid uh, midway between sort of the all the uh, show of hands and exit stage left where they sound really good. And also it, it sort of bridges the gap between like Russian Rio where there's tons and tons of crowd noise. Like to me, this is a really, really good uh, middle ground between the actual sound of the performance and the actual, like, Holy cow. You know, this is, it feels like a live show. You can actually hear the crowd, but it's not overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just the set list for me. There's just a lot of really good songs on here that I, I personally uh, like a lot. Um, Natural Science, stuff like that. Um, some songs that they hadn't played for, for a while, they, they sort of dug up for this tour. So those are the first things that come to mind with, with this album. For, um, I, I would, I'm sorry, I would, I would say that uh, the set list would be number one because I think the Test for Echo Tour set list is is one of their best. I think it's extremely balanced, um, you know, and and it's got such you know it has really heavyweight songs like you know, Twenty One Twelve in its entirety. You've got Natural Science thrown in, um, you know, a a mix of kind of the hits also, but then there are some you know a lot of '90s songs. Um, the only thing it it lacks a little bit is the '80s and. Um, but on the tour, they actually they played Force 10, but on the on the CD, they didn't include it. So they don't include any uh, Hold Your Fire songs, unfortunately. But um, to me, the set list is, is one of the big things. It's it's a very balanced set list. This is one of the last records I obtained as a fan uh, that I just one of the last ones I got my hands on. And I knew it had sh- uh, Show Don't Tell. And that was such a, a gem for me early on. And I, I, to be honest, I kind of wore it out. I don't listen to that song very often anymore because I had killed it. I beat it to death, but I couldn't wait to hear that song live. I thought it was going to, I thought it was going to work live. I thought it was going to have a lot of energy. I was right about those things, I think. And that was the big reason I wanted to get this album was specifically for that song. And then I, then I got it. I didn't really know what the album was about. I got it and went, oh. 2112 in its entirety very cool and then saw that third disc and i was like i really don't understand what's going on here until i you know did some research um i've always kind of gravitated towards the newer stuff but man that sorry i'm getting a phone call and it's interrupting it's interrupting my show how do i stop (laughs) that oh well i'll figure it out in a sec um part of me is like well this older the cd with the older stuff on it is so so well done like let's compare it to a few weeks ago we were talking about all the world's a stage it's a very different sounding album the the stuff from 1978 don't you think jeff 
Yeah, uh, to me, this uh, the, uh, the sound is great. It's, you know, the, each instrument you can hear really clearly. And also, I think this is, for me, this is like my quintessential Rush sound. Like, the CD epitomizes what, um, you know, what they would be like from this point on. It's... Um, it's kind of like the beginning of the modern rush, like, you know, all subsequent live albums kind of share the same structure in a way in, in, in the set list. I mean, this is the, this tour was the first time they had uh, three hours, you know, an evening with rush. So there was no opener. So, you know, the length is, is, uh, is similar. And there's also certain songs that occupy, you know, certain points in the set list, which they would kind of more or less stick with in, in, in subsequent tours. But yeah, as, as far as the sound, like to me, this is, you know, how rush, it would sound, you know, because I had experienced this album, you know, comparing it to um, a show of hands and the, the previous albums, there's a very different sound. Uh, so for me, this was, uh, you know, it made an impression with the, you know, just the, the way the instrument sounded, especially Getty's bass. Oh, yeah, this is absolutely so. the beginning of what I would call Getty's modern bass tone from today that we get for the rest of the, their career. And, um, I've always thought this was kind of the beginning. Like, I'll ask Dave, do you feel like this is the beginning of what the modern Rush live album will sound like? That's what it feels like for me. Yeah, I think so. And it's kind of ironic considering that this was kind of, I mean, at the time, this was sort of the end of Rush, you know, that we kind of thought that... Um, you know, this album was came out at such a weird time that, I mean, I guess Getty and, and uh, Paul Northfield producing this, you know, he, he went on to produce Vapor Trails for, <laughs> you know, for better or for worse. Um, but you can tell that Getty's, Getty's fingerprints is on a lot of the rush from this point on, you know, a lot of the production stuff. Um, and yeah, it just, it, it, it seems like, you know, we kind of have to put this in context that this was, this could have been the last thing that Rush ever did. I know, Jay, you've mentioned that before that, you know, what if Carve Away the Stone was the last Rush <laughs> song that they ever put out? Yeah. That, you know, this could have been the last, you know, and I kind of think of that, that they threw in this last disc, this 1978 thing, sort of as a, you know, thanks for being a fan you know, for so long. Oh, and this, this might be the last thing we ever do. Yeah. I, I think in a way, this is kind of like that, the R40 almost like it's a way of saying, uh, you know, kind of, well, this is, you know, we're, we'll put in the third disc as a way to look back at the seventies and, um, yeah, kind of, you know, tie things up. I, I, I personally, I expected different stages to be the last rush album I would ever buy, um, because of, you know, what had happened. It just seemed like, Oh, you know, this is, this is kind of it. They've already been around for, you know, 25 odd years. Um, so I, I remember, you know, buying the album and again personally for me this album is special because uh i you know I, I bought it with my own money that i had you know saved up working at subway when i was 18 so i i had just graduated high school and you know i, I went out i got this album and it was like oh okay this is great i can remember the, the the first and last tour that i ever went to and then they continued on for 17 more years mm -hmm. which is, is still kind of hard to believe so. yeah 17 years of bonus material right <laughs> You know, exactly. <laughs> if we look at the cover and the album art, it's easy to go, okay, uh, I, like, I've always looked at it and thought it was deeper than maybe they we, we see it on the surface. Uh, you look at it and you go, okay, there's two CDs. There's three CDs in this pack. Two of them are from essentially the same tour about, and one is far removed, and that's what that maybe represents. And then I also look at it as it kind of, whether this was intentional or not, it kind of reminds me of like Getty and Alex. And then Neil is like, you know, in a very different place and also physically far removed when this record was coming out. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's always felt like that to also, me. It, was, it always felt like Neil was in a different place than the other two guys in the band. It felt like a rock trio and one guy was was removed i think too that you could look at the uh, the you know the the three sort of tinker toys as this could also be i mean 
Rush's history has always been, you know, there's lots of threes in in the history, and this could be Neil and Selena and Jackie also. You know, Neil lost two of the two of the three people yeah, in his yeah. little tribe. Also, you know, there, there's tons and tons of this, you know, symbolism just just on this one album, let alone all their other albums. But yeah, this one's you know just crawling with lots of, uh, you know, just lots of symbolism like that. Um, just kind of echoing, I guess, the theme of neil being you know out on his own you know before the tragedy before this tour uh was when he was working with uh freddie gruber so he he changed his drumming and so you know this is kind of the the result of that so in a way he was kind of off you know doing his own thing alone kind of perfecting his you know his art form kind of separate from the other two guys and then you know for this tour it kind of comes together and a lot of these songs sound you know different as a result of that too so I kind of look at this, uh, and, and I'll talk about the the ninety the two CDs from the nineties first uh, for a second. They always felt like they represented two albums, two studio albums, much like a show of hands. A show of hands does not feel like a hold your fire album to me. That feels like a tour that was rep that was. Um, in support of power windows and hold your fire as a as a duo like almost like like if they if if anthem decided they wanted to bundle power windows and hold your fire i'd be like yeah yeah that makes sense <laughs> i always considered them sister albums and um th while i don't relate counterparts and test for echo as studio albums together as heavily i always considered this album to be equally representing counterparts material and test for echo material um in addition while i listened to it this week preparing for the show i go you know this is actually kind of in a sense representing uh, roll the bones as well we can go three albums backwards because they bring mm -hmm. back these the first three tracks on roll the bones and for a listener like me who who wasn't a fan back then i get to hear roll the bones material with a very new sound like i've been saying for the last few weeks um it's always very telling when they play the material from the last album and i am considering roll the bones to be the last album because i feel like it represents counterparts and test for echo right they bring back the first three tracks and they each each of them have like their own special flavor on this on this recording and i think that's very telling um for us, the fans, about how they feel about those Roll the Bones songs, especially those three. And they open up with Dreamline, uh, a song that I love and I'll never complain about hearing live, no matter how many times I hear it. It's always different. Um, I would argue this is the most different it's ever been. It's 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 just something about it that feels, um, that, that kind of sets it apart from everything else. But part of me is like, I don't know if this is a great opener. I know they opened with it really? for two, maybe three tours. It doesn't feel like the best song to open with to me with that tiny little guitar part. And then Getty's vocals and bass lines just kind of sneak in there. It doesn't open like The Anarchist or Tom Sawyer or, or you know, what, what are the big ones that they always open with? Um... You know the, the big money maybe these big power openers it doesn't feel like that for me am i are you on board with me dave uh, i think i'm with jeff because i i totally disagree i think dreamline you know it, it they usually do it with you know the ocean the, the waves crashing type thing and then it's sort of it, it's alex's guitar and then it just kind of explodes once you know once neil comes in and they usually do like the you know, they usually have like the green lights in the background, you know, that sort of flash around and stuff. And I, I don't know, I think this might be, I, I, I hate to totally disagree with you, Jay, but I, I think to me, this is the perfect, this is the best song that Rush starts with. The best. Um, just the because best song. It's, it, it's so, I, I, for me personally, yeah, I, I think it's, I don't know. Put me on the Dreamline uh, appreciation opening song. <laughs> we just started a new group. Yeah, yeah exactly. Dave, that's gonna be Dave's thing. He's like the he's the co-founder of the um, the Dreamline as the best song support group. It, it doesn't flow as well, Dave. You got to work on it. 
Yeah, well, I'll I'll, I'll come up with a better, uh, you know, uh, Dave Dreamline Hawfines. There you go. <laughs> but yeah, to me, I don't know that the song the song starts quiet, and then once it starts, it just it kind of once they hit that you know da da da, it just it it explodes, and and I I love it. I think it's a joyous song. You know, I think it's it's a really good uh, it's a good opener. Yeah, Jay, I'll have to strongly disagree also uh, and, and, yes, and back up yes. my... Uh... Uh, no, let me, let me clarify. To... I'm not saying anything anything else about that song is bad. Like, I, I love the song. I like it early in the set list. It's just those first few seconds that are, that are lackluster in terms of energy. You know what I mean? And like when they, well, the me, band finally me, comes in, I think it works as an opener. But I want when the band comes out, I want it to be a moment. I don't want this like do 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 that. That's not going to work for me. Uh, well, I, I would think of it this way though. Um, I, and this, it could just be that you know this was my first concert experience. So like this one does stick out, and it was also the first time I had heard this song was was live because I had not gotten into uh, Roll the Bones yet. But I think, for me, this song is the best opening song since uh, Bastille Day, or even perhaps Finding My Way, which, you know, this is what those songs they played, you know, early in their career. But in a lot of ways, they're kind of similar to uh, Dreamline, because, you you know, all of those songs start out with a, a guitar lick, a, a, a strong kind of guitar lick that kind of, uh, you know, like Finding My Way. I mean, it's not quite the same as Dreamline, but it starts out with Alex. And then the other guys come in and it kind of hits and builds intensity to a chorus, kind of like Dreamline does. So, I mean, I think there's a similar structure going on. And and to me, like, you know, when it, it's a brief crescendo, it's not like it starts low energy. I think, you know, Alex is playing is still pretty, um, you know, it's it's precise. And then when you've got, yes, those green laser lights kind of uh, mimicking the, the picking that's going on. And then, you know, Getty comes in with a big, you know, low e it just kind of you could feel it like you could you know the you felt it and then when the when the chorus hit it was just to me a really effective opener so now i mean i'll all i never ever thought there'd be a day where especially on my show where i come on the air and 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 defend the spirit of radio <laughs> over a sleeper like dreamline in terms of like radio hits or openers but man, like I don't think it gets any better than opening with Spirit of Radio. I really don't. That, that's just me. And and like you said, it opens with a guitar riff, same, you know, right, Dreamline, right. Spirit of Radio, same deal. I hear what you're saying. Um, uh, but but you ex but you almost expect Spirit of Radio. I, I think I think with Dreamline, it it comes at you from a, a like it, especially for me it did when it was the first time I had heard it. So like you know if they had opened with Spirit of Radio, I would have been you know completely excited. Wouldn't I wouldn't have complained. But I, I kind of like how they work Spirit of Radio at the end, um, just because it had so much radio play. It was such a, a hit, and I don't know. I kind of like that they opened with something a little less known. That's true, and, and you know, I would have loved the fact that I was surprised. You, that's a great point. Mm -hmm. I would have expected Spirit of Radio, um, but to hear something like that in the late 90s and go, wow, this is... And, you know, I've always... When I saw... The first time I learned they opened these few tours with Dreamline, I'm like, it's a brand new song. It's kind of similar to The Anarchist. The Anarchist was two years old when they decided to... Or no, uh, two, three or four years old when they decided to open with it on R40. You know, that's a big deal. They hadn't done that very often. And, and when I went to this concert, I was actually... Uh, I went with a couple friends who were not necessarily into Rush yet, and this is actually one of the songs that stuck out for them. I think this became one, you know, uh, some one guy's favorite song, just because I think it sounds such, you know, so different. He wasn't always a fan of Getty's voice, and in this song, it's very, you know, it's uh, in a different kind of register. And so, like to me, the the song is, you know, for someone who's a new listener, maybe they would, you know, kind of be. A little more comfortable with it. Yeah, I always say that everything on Presto and Roll the Bones is the most singer-friendly material for anyone that sings in a normal register and not like Getty. It's all very low on those two records. Um, right. And uh, to, to to sort of piggyback on that, I think I mean Spirit Radio is a great opening song, but you know when you go to a live show, especially a three-hour one, 
you know, the, the energy, it's like the first four or five songs are kind of wasted because nobody is really that into it in the beginning. Like, I love the spirit of radio, like at the, toward the end of the show, cause they bring up the house lights and everybody, you know, by then people are, people have had a couple beers, people are really into it and like they expect to. And then when they bring up the lights, it's kind of like a, you know, Hey, thanks for being here. Where when spirit of radio is the first song you hear, it's kind of, I don't know. It, it to me, when you go to a live show, it kind of takes you a couple songs to really get into things and mm-hmm. dreamline it never really loses like it's gusto. Like it never really, it never really lags. Like just when it starts to get kind of, just when you start to get kind of used to it, there's a really bitchin guitar solo. And I don't know. I just feel like it's a little bit, it's, it's a better pace to begin with than, than that. So it sets a different tone too. I think. Yeah. I could talk all day about that middle solo and dreamline. Like it's different every time you hear it. <laughs> And I think on this record, it's just a, something about it's a little more raw. Like get it, or um, Alex was slightly more caffeinated when he recorded this version. Um, True. And yeah, yeah he d- he does that. It's it's kind of twice twice as long as it normally is. I think this is, you know, this is the first time they really played it live. And I think they've done that since then, where he sort of doubles up. You know, okay. he sort of just noodles in the very beginning, and then he goes right into like the the recorded. The one that you hear exactly. on the record, and, and and the recorded part's always what you expect, but the, and and he's never mm-hmm. done it like he does it on the studio live. It's always d- twice as long, but there's that middle, that first half is always improvised. Ugh, it's it's such a great so we, experience. We, I love change your mind? my favorite part of yeah. it is that he misses, <laughs> he, he kind of misses the um, uh, that high note towards the very end, like three quarters of the way yeah, through. Yeah. He kind of misses it, and it takes him like two or three tries to get up to it. Whether that was by design or not, it's a really nice musical effect. Uh, let's um, let's skip ahead to uh, the next song on Roll the Bones and talk about Bravado. Um, I I have always, forever, and always will will label this as the best recording of this song to ever exist, and the extended guitar solo at the end of the song is magical and um i could say hi i could talk highly about that recording for a long time is it do you guys hold it as highly as i do um yeah i guess i i think this is great placement in the set list um because it's the it's the fourth song and it's a nice change of pace, but it's a beautiful performance also, like e- extremely passionate, uh, especially, yeah, with the guitar solo. So I, I think it does a few things. It, it kind of changes uh, the pace a little bit, slows it down. Um, but then again, it's got a, a, an amazing build and that extended piece at the end that you were talking about, I completely agree. So. Yeah, I think looking at it now, I, I didn't really think about it before, but I think it, it's kind of weird to be between Driven and Animate, which are both, you know, very, for lack of a better term, like Driven songs. Um, I, I Looking at the the track listing, it sort of mimics actually how the set list was for the, uh, you know, for the live show. They sort of go in order. Um, but I don't know. It's kind of a weird, I don't mind it when I listen to it, but doing it again i don't know if if i were doing this i don't know if i'd put it between driven and animate which are both very you know a little bit harder songs but yeah the actual like the recording the recording is great um that outro is really really cool i remember when um we're thinking about this uh, this wasn't played on the tour that that i that you know i was at but i could i could picture them doing a lot of stuff with lights with this real sort of, you know, swirling kind of, you know, ambient type of lights and stuff during his extended outro, which I, I would think would be really cool. Mm-hmm. He does these like swells with the volume pedal. It's, it's a, it's a really musical and tasteful solo. Um, not to say that Alex isn't those things normally. He's always those things. Um, but I mean, let's, I mean, let's contrast it with something like, uh, um, the analog kid, where we all know he goes completely bonkers <laughs> each time he plays it live. Uh, Dave, is this a song? Is this a recording that is, in your opinion, kind of uh, iconic? 
Um, Speaking for of analog, kid. For oh, analog. Oh my gosh. I mean, I they could record analog kid in a in a garage, and I would think it's you know it's one of my favorite. It's it's probably up there as one of my just favorite Rush songs. Period. But mm. yeah, to actually hear it live, um, it's it's amazing. I think it it sounds awesome. The pace is really good. I mean, it's probably really easy to play this song too fast or a little too slow. Yeah. Um, but you know, it sounds great. And the crowd, you could tell the crowd was really into it. Um, they, you know, this is not a song that you hear very often from them live. And it, I think it sounds awesome. I think it's great. Uh, I would totally agree. Um, yeah. Animate is one of my just favorite songs in, in general, but, uh, I, yeah, I think the, the tempo is, is great on, uh, on different stages. Um, I would, also, maybe add uh, going back to bravado um, in the in the real set list for the Test for Echo tour. In between Driven and Animate, they had Half the World and Red Barchetta. So, um, you know, do do you, do you either you either of you guys kind of miss those two songs uh, not being in the different stages or? Um, no. Just, yeah. <laughs> just I mean, curious. Yeah, half the world definitely not, definitely not. It's it's not my favorite song. I, and Red Barchetta, I, I would have loved to have heard Red Barchetta, but you know it's been on so many, True. so many ones since then. Um, especially the the uh, exit stage left version of that is really hard to beat. I think they that was a great version, a live version too. For me, I'll always take the new material, like a chance to hear a song I haven't heard recorded before live. Um, while half the world might not be the like strongest song on the record, it's definitely one I would love to hear live. And I'm with Dave. Like you know, I've heard Red Barchetta a billion times, and it's fantastic. But I would definitely jump on the opportunity if you told me you were gonna swap out Limelight for Half the World. I'd do it in a heartbeat on this album. Mm. But that that's just me. I like the newer stuff. I like the the opportunity to hear something new over the old material. Uh, that's because I'm a freak, and I know a lot of people aren't on board with that, but, you know, half the world is, is there's just something about Tess for Echo, and I still, I've said this for a long time on the show, I just think it's the most neglected album that there is. I, it doesn't get much love, even on its own tour, like, a lot of it, well, a lot of it was yeah. played on the tour, but it wasn't included on this album, like, why didn't we get to hear time and motion you know there's 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 not you can't really look you can't take this album test for echo and point to one track as being like the juggernaut or like or the you know some people disagree with this i think you can point to secret touch and be like yeah secret touch represents vapor trails or, or one little victory or ghost rider like look at all the different tracks on that one album <laughs> as an example that you can point to is going that represents that album i don't think there is one on test for echo or at least the band doesn't treat one like that's the case i think maybe driven driven gets a lot of love i guess what if they played it on two tours since then you know what i mean what jeff do you feel me mm. Yeah, as as much as I love Test for Echo, and you know, it did come out when I was you know becoming a fan. So I've always I, I have a a special you know kind of connection to that album. But I, I you know it's just not the kind of album to be promoted kind of in the same way that Clockwork Angels was. Like it just seemed like they they were more enthusiastic for certain albums like Clockwork Angels. You know, you know maybe Vapor Trails. Uh, instead of test for echo i mean there there are still really good songs on test for echo and I, yeah i would have loved to hear a recording of time in motion because they did play it on the first leg of the tour uh they ended up dropping it so they actually they dropped a few songs from uh test for echo they did on the first leg of the tour uh, as opposed to the second so yeah that would have been nice i mean it would have been good if they would have played you know a song like totem uh which you know some of us were kind of hoping maybe they would they would pull out if they were going to go you know deep into the b-sides but um yeah I, I i like the album but i'm i'm not under any illusions as far as its placement in the in the overall catalog like it, it you know it's it is not as strong as some other of their material so you feel the same way dave i'm just I'm kind of bummed that they didn't play dog years no i'm just kidding i'm not <laughs> bummed at all he's trying <laughs> but, to stir the yeah it's <laughs> <laughs> um 
Yeah, considering I, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that Tess Breco was the single, the first single from that album. Um, so I think, if anything, that was sort of the, you know, that's sort of the 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 trademark song of of that album. But I, you know, the fact that they played like virtuality and time and motion and and stuff, and you know, driven half the world uh, on this tour, it's you know, they played a good amount of of Tess Breco songs, but I yeah. think maybe the fact that there's not a love, not a lot of love for the album, you know, is sort of a byproduct of where they were at. You know, what happened right after this album came out? Oh, I think that's um, absolutely. You know, it's it, it, it's such a weird. You know, when something like that happens, it's kind of. You know, people probably went back in time, you know, with a little bit more nostalgia, sort of looking back at their whole career instead of the thing that just came out. So, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to, you know, imagine what if that had never happened with with Neil and everything. But I think everything that happened since then, you know, especially Tess for Echo is is a byproduct of of that whole time in life, you know. Mm -hmm. So Driven got played a little bit, and uh, can anybody tell me about what Getty says at the beginning of this recording, where he gives this big, like, hello, and then he says, yeah, beautiful, and that's it. What does that mean? Uh, I took it as he was doing an accent, um, kind of, yeah, the beautiful uh, in maybe a, I don't, I'm, sometimes he does the Scottish or the Irish type of, you know, uh, inflection in his voice. That's that's all I thought it was. It's just a yeah, little I agree. Too, I like, think he was just doing some kind of, yeah. A little too clowny, that's all. <laughs> but, you know, we I get like to hear Driven, hear... it's like bigger and fuller already. Um, kind of gets the live sound treatment. Because I think Driven is one of the most compressed and uh, dry-sounding recordings they ever made. Something about that recording on Test for Echo is just a little too light for me. Maybe that's because I heard it on Rio first, where it was heavy and it was a lot closer to metal on Rio. But we hear it's it's definitely a step in the right direction on this recording. And the extended bass solo must have been refreshing to hear even yeah. on its own tour the song is brand new and we're already extending it for a bass solo and while it's not nearly as flashy as the one on rio at least it's there definitely i, I love it you know changing it up and adding you know a long bass solo was you know at the time you know i was uh playing bass myself and uh you know, this to me, it was it was it was great. You know, I tried to learn it and, um, you know, I, I, I thought it was a, an interesting yeah addition to a, a new song also. So I uh, I agree. I love that, you know, be- before he does that kind of, you know, little extended bass solo and it starts out kind of wimpy. You know, he, he sort of noodles around for a little bit and then, you know, you hear somebody in the crowd say, all right, Getty, shake it off. And then he like. He, you know, he turns everything up to 11 and it just, you know, the whole place vibrates. Um, and then it goes into that, you know, Alex totally shreds on his, you know, right after that and on his solo. And yeah, I, I definitely agree that this, this, this makes the studio, uh, version of it just seem really, really tame. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Like the band has to be careful. You know, if you're, if you play this too well live, <laughs> we're not going to like the studio recording so much, <laughs> you know, well, you're kind of, he's kind of spoiling us. Um, yeah. Let's stick with the Test for Echo album. The title track, not surprising that they played it just because they usually play the first track of an album, especially a track that's named after the album. But man, the highlight has to be the ending. On a song that already has a sharp, strong ending, the opposite of a fade out, we get kind of an extension where the song ends or it normally does and immediately kicks in with Getty yelling echo and then a final hit after the fact. You know what I'm talking about, Dave? Yeah, that's an interesting, uh, interesting way to end it. Um, but it is, it is nice because it's, you know, there, there's not a whole lot, you know, sometimes they're guilty of sort of adding on, 
you know, a, a, you know, 30 seconds or a minute of of ending where there doesn't really need to be this just, you know, it just crashes to an ending. It's it's a good way to good way to do that. I like the placement as a, a second set opener. Uh, I, I think it works pretty well. It's a little bit long. It's over six minutes. Um, so, but uh, I, I think it's a uh, kind of a you know a dark horse kind of song. I, I like hearing it. I think it's uh, the lyrics are good, I, I, and the and the sound on the on this album is really good. I think it's a song that might not ever see the light of day again. I wouldn't be surprised if it was like, yeah, we played yeah. it on that tour and then we're done. We got it. It's kind of mm-hmm. like a one-off. I, I genuinely believe. I mean, most of the songs in the catalog okay. you might not ever hear again. But, you know, once their career is said and done, um, we'll be able to look at that track and be like, wow, that was it. That was all I got. And um, I don't know what that says about it, but, you know, we're talking about. I don't really- mind. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I, I was going to say, I don't mind that so much. Like, you, you know, if they just wanted to try a song, because there's kind of a, a perverse part of me that wouldn't mind hearing a dog ears or, you know, even Tai Shan, you know, thrown in as a, as an encore in a weird place or something. I, I mean, I, I like the weird rush and I like, you know, hearing songs they don't normally play and, and trying them on. And, and if they never would have played again, Hey, that, you know, they've, there's lots of other stuff to, you know, to talk about. So, that's how I feel. Yeah, and I, I think the the one song that will live on that they play live from this album is probably going to be Driven. Yeah, um, it's a lot more, you know, it's it's just more suited to the live to the live uh, show. But it, you know, it, I think that you know, if they ever tour ten years from now and they play a song from Test for Echo, it's going to be Driven. You know, Nobody's Hero is a song I always confused in my head and i thought it was on test for echo for a bit it feels like a test for echo kind of song to me for some reason even though Mm -hmm. thematically in terms of the lyrics it definitely fits on counterparts but um i wrote down cool non-fade out because sometimes (laughs) you know most of the times we take a a song that fades out and we put an ending on it's just some big rock and roll ending but the ending we get on this one if anybody's buying and then that's it in music theory we call it a half cadence and it's the exact opposite of what your ear expects you to get. You expect to get that last note. And in a half cadence, you don't get the, the, the resolution you're looking for. It's cool to see a band like Rush kind of utilizing that technique that uh, classical composers used for, for so long. Uh, but you don't need to analyze it that deeply to understand what I mean. Um, if anybody's buying and then we don't get nobody's hero, it's a really cool effect, right, Jeff? Yes, I'm. I'm glad you bring up this song. Like it's, uh, it's one that stands out for me. Yeah, the the ending, I love it. Like you were saying, um, but you know, just the the beginning where where he's you know strumming this acoustic guitar, it changes up the the entire sound. It's, um, and like for me visually, that's one thing that stands out. When I was at the concert, uh, the black and white footage that was in the background, um, you know, going through the. Um, you know, I guess part of the video or whatever they were showing and um, it you know made an impression it's a really kind of an emotional song and like I'm really glad that they included it on the album I agree I and I I actually wrote you know no fade out exclamation point just to <laughs> to, to bring that up to Jay I, I also did that with show don't tell also that one doesn't fade out um, and yeah nobody's hero it seems it sounds a little bit more orchestral like i don't know if they use the orchestra from you know right from the studio recording but it it seems like it's fuller than it had been in times that they played it since um it just seems it's it's kind of bass heavy and there's it seems less sparse um you know it it just seems very it it sounds it sounds really full on this album yeah a song that totally benefited from the live treatment like in in a song that maybe necessarily didn't necessarily need to benefit like it didn't it wasn't subpar to begin with it was such a great mix on counterparts um but somehow like you're like you said it's just a yeah, you wouldn't fuller when you think of songs from counterparts to 
to play live, Nobody's Hero is probably the last thing to, you know, how, how is this really going to sound in, a, in an arena full of 20,000 people? But it, it sounds great. I mean, it sounds, it, it's a great mix of acoustic and electric and, you know, it, it sounds really good. Yeah, it totally does. And let's go, let's move to what I consider it's sister song in a sense. It always has the same kind of vibe to me as Resist. And while the acoustic version of Resist is cool, I similar to what we're saying about Nobody's Hero, you know, that original studio album version works really well and it works really well live. I really enjoy it on this recording. Um, let me see, did I take any notes on it? Uh, hardly. I, I just like hearing it. I, I really wouldn't mind hearing the electric version live. You know what I mean, Jeff? Yes, I, I I think there is out there on maybe on YouTube they don't they have a a version somewhere? I, or am I wrong? Is this? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, no. video version, right? Right. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, no, I think it. Yeah, if the full band treatment on uh, Resist, there would be nothing wrong with it. I, I think it would be actually yeah more interesting probably than the than the album version. And then we get an ending. Uh, the yeah, ending this... of this one is so cool. Very similar to Nobody's Hero. Um, oh, no, no, no. I'm thinking of Nobody's Hero, um, which fades into Closer to the Hearts intro. But uh, the ending on the studio album, again, thank you for not fading out a song like Resist. We get da, 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 and those three low notes right at the very end. Such a great musical ending that they kept for the, the live recording. You know, this this um, segment of like the 90s material gets into some older stuff. So we get to hear really old material with their new modern sound. Um, specifically, Cygnus X1, book one, where he kind of whispers. Dave, do you know what I'm talking about? Where he kind of whispers the part in the middle where he says, invisible to telescopic eye. Oh yeah, yep. It's like a ta it's like a just a tinge different than the studio recording where they really sink down and he whispers it and then the band kicks back in. A really cool moment. Yeah, it he it sounds kind of choppy. Like it, it sounds like he's, you know, uh, it, it it's choppier. He doesn't sing in it like he does on the on the album version, but yeah, it's it's really cool and and different. It's really cool, Jeff, to hear so much of Cygnus, book one, in, you know, what I consider to be modern Rush in the late 90s. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's yeah, kind of unexpected at this point. They weren't looking back too much. Uh, if they did, it was usually the, you know, the more popular uh, songs. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's, it's a welcome, you know, addition. I'll, uh, I'll climb up the ranks here for what I consider to be the top three of these older tracks. Uh, By Tour and the Snow Dog, this middle solo section is completely insane. And it, and it kind of, it's, in a way, it fades into Xanadu. You know the, Dave, do you know like the transition I'm talking about? Yeah, yep. The solo in the middle yeah, it, of Bytor is just completely, again, I'll use the word bonkers. I'm going to use it for the next two songs I'm going to talk about. But <laughs> to hear them go completely crazy like that is a really refreshing experience. Yeah, and you got to think, like, you know, this was 78. This was, you know, Bytor was only a couple years old by this time. And they, I'm sure they were, you know, playing it every single night. And it's, yeah, it just, it, it they just take the, you know, put their put their put the pedal the whole way down and just go nuts with it you know a lot of these a lot of these songs from the third disc these 78 songs like in my notes it's you know played it really fast played it really fast played it really fast you know it the, the pace is breakneck you know this was them at their you know most technical most just just yeah good word bonkers you know they just go nuts with it I think they sound extremely tight. There's a lot of, you know, precision, especially between the guitar and the bass. Just, you know, they they are just right with each other. So I think it's the, the, a lot of energy, especially that night. I mean, the um, the energy in each song is just extremely high. I think they're really comfortable with the songs at that point. Uh, it's 
it's like uh, you know this is a few years after all the world's a stage, yeah. and um, it seems like now they're a lot more they've settled into the songs really well and ju they're just so tight, you know. Um, I don't intend to make a pun here, but the king of all these old tracks on the third disc to me is a farewell to kings. Um, I don't know why. I have no idea why that song hadn't been played live more for the rest of their career. But man, this if this isn't an example of why it's such a great track, I don't know what is. It's so, it, it it works so well live that the contrast between the, the soft intro and how heavy the rest of the song is, but still kind of bright and uplifting. Um, the bass feature, again, goes bonkers during the bass feature, right? Um, to hear Getty's improvising so early in the, his career and on a fairly new song, he's improvises like crazy. And it's a, it's really representative of that nice, thick, growly, um, gritty Rickenbacker bass tone that he had back then. I'm sure Jeff knows what I'm talking about as a bass player. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the Rick sound is, you know, just... Um, quintessential rush in the 70s and uh yeah the, just the the growl of it is is amazing and it comes through on all these the only thing I, the only if i could make a little criticism it might be that i i think as a younger bass player i think maybe you do this he has a tendency to kind of um you know do the like the the you know like a glissando yeah, down a lot ball. like it yeah, like he does that a lot actually in, in, in a lot of these songs. The so that's just a little thing, but other you know, it's it's amazing. He's totally you know, he's very, very busy and very, you know, just great. David, do can you can you say this is better than all the world's a stage? Am I crazy if I say that this third disc is better? <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, I, I think the songs on this, uh, for me personally, I mean, it, you know, it's a, it's a personal opinion, but yeah, I, I much prefer the songs on this, uh, you know, Farewell to Kings. I, I think Xanadu on, uh, you know, All the World's a Stage is maybe a little bit better than this one, but, you know, Cygnus and, and the Working Man Fly by Night in the Mood sort of medley, I think is, is it's not seamless, but it's a great, it's a great way to pack, you know, three songs into a, you know, a 10 minute space and, and they all work together. And, yeah. you know, Cinderella, man, I, I love, I know a lot of people don't really dig that song, but you know, I, I think it sounds awesome. I, I'm, I don't Do you know. like it at the end? I don't really, uh, I don't really have a problem with it at the end, but I think the working man fly by night in the mood would have been a little bit better at the end, but I mean, it's kind of a weird way to end the disc, but I don't know, just the fact that it's on there, just the fact that, you know, we could hear them play this in 1978. It, it sounds, I, I just love that song and I, I love it on this recording. What about you, Jeff? I think, yeah, I would have to, I was actually thinking about that, that this, this show is kind of a little bit better than, than all the world's a stage. Um, a couple songs that they, don't include on this disc is lakeside park i mean that that would have been a, nice to hear but um you know and then they do 2112 but that's back in in disc one of uh, different stages so they've already kind of covered the the 2112 so um no I, I like cinderella man a lot also and uh, it doesn't bother me as the last song either so well let's talk about getting to hear that song in its entirety how um Oh, yeah. yeah, I've caught maybe the most heat in my Rushcast career from from saying that I, I would be disappointed if I went to a Rush show now, today, and they played 2112 in its entirety. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I wouldn't want one song to eat up that many slots that much time. I'd rather hear something like Half the World, right, like we were talking about. And, and like Jeff said, uh, maybe, maybe I want to hear Dog Years simply because I've never heard it before. I know there's people <laughs> screaming right now. But I, I would rather hear something I've never heard, even if it was Tai Shan, over another eight minutes of, of 2112. However, it's cool for me to hear it in a recording sense because, you know, I'm not wasting the time that I, and the money that I spent on that concert. You know, this sounds so much worse than I mean it, right? But you get the yeah. idea. 
So it's cool for me to well, hear it on a it, live album. And something about this Tess for Echo guitar tone, bass tone, like Jeff was mentioning, really works with 2112. And um, Discovery in particular, where Alex is just kind of noodling, is a very organic experience to kind of digest and consume. And I'm very glad that I got to hear it on this record, and I think it's done perfectly. I'll go to I'll go to Dave first. What do you think about this? I agree. Well, I mean, I I don't agree with Jay. I hate twenty one twelve Mantis. That's going to be oh your new gosh. your new nickname. <laughs> Wait, I mean, the hyperbole is um is fitting for <laughs> so. So yeah, so this to put this into context, and I, I don't know, I, I don't know if Jeff can, you know, uh, agree with me, corroborate my, but uh, when I when you know being at this show, it was, you know, they play all these songs, you know, they they played, what twelve, thirteen songs, closer to the heart is a thirteenth song that they played at the concert, and it's you know it's the extended jam session, and it's like, you know, getting toward the end of that, it's like okay, they're gonna take a break now. And then they end closer to the heart, and then you hear the 2112 thing start. And I was at this show with my brother, and I remember looking at him and saying, holy crap, like, they're not going to play 21, like, they're not playing 2112, right? And as it kept going, it was like, holy crap, like, they're starting 2112, like, after 13, you know, after you expect them to take a break. And it was... I was blown away, and especially when they end the Temples of Syrix thing, and then they keep going, and it's the discovery. And like you said, you know, it's I might get some hate for this, but this to me is a lot more dynamic than it actually is on the album. Oh, like yeah. there's a lot you more. Totally argue that. You know, it's it's way heavier and it's way lighter and it's a lot more. You know, it's 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 a lot more quiet and it's a lot it's a lot louder and it just the presentation hits like a sledgehammer and it, you know, it's, I disagree that, I mean, I, I love 2112 every time they play it live, but to actually hear this whole thing after this whole first half of the concert, it's like, they just played all of 2112. Like did that just happen? And it's, it's amazing that they, they actually put it on this disc too. Um, I love it. And it, it might be a, it might be a side effect of them, this is the first time that they've never had an opener. So it's like, <laughs> how can we fill up another 18 minutes here? <laughs> you know, you bring up a good point in a pre-internet age or maybe like a, a very, the very beginnings of the internet. Um, I can't just look up the set list for a tour. And um, I bet a large majority of the people at those shows did not know what was coming. And to hear the end of mm -hmm. Temples of Syrinx, like you said, and then go, oh, or I guess I should say the overture, hearing the end of the overture and then realizing this thing ain't over must have been a, an right. experience unlike anything else you've ever, you know, been through at a Rush show. Right, Jeff? Yeah, it, it was totally worth it. Um, even though it takes up a lot of time, to me, it was absolutely worth it. Like, uh, I didn't know what was coming. Yeah, like you said, it was early in the Internet, so I, I didn't have a set list on me um, like I do now. But uh, it it was amazing. Like as a 17 year old, you know, I had just become a fan a couple years ago. Um, so I was vaguely familiar with, you know, some of the songs and, uh, you know, I knew the first two, but as it went on into, you know, the discovery and presentation and Oracle, um, it, it really made an impression. I mean, you had just looking around, you saw the different generations of fans. Like I, I remember seeing, you know, bikers in their 40s and 50s dressed in all black you know you know screaming right along to to getty you know as the the priest are yelling and uh just the whole the whole thing made it an impression on me i just you know i saw everybody who who loved these songs so much from the 70s and then you know myself you know having you know a, a different experience but getting to hear the entire thing again for the first time because even back in you know for all the world's a stage, they omitted, uh, you know, the discovery and, uh, what Oracle, I think. So it was, I, I think totally worth it. Yeah. Better know, than hearing. Dog I like what Dave so. said about maybe it may be being <laughs> a little more, um, 
dynamically diverse, right? It, it, the lows were lower, the highs were higher, the heaviers were heavier. Yeah. In that kind of sense, that's a it's a good point to make about that that performance. Uh, I hope that nickname doesn't stick. I have a feeling it will, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll do everything I, I in my power to make sure it doesn't. I, I agree with you to a certain extent on on the first two, on the overture and and temples, because I've heard that so much, and they've played that in so many tours. Like I think it's it's oversaturated, and I I would if I heard that again on another tour, I would be a little like uh, I would rather hear something else. What was so. it? Um, I think it was Clockwork Angels Live, where I thought that is the best arrangement of that song. I think it included. One verse of um, I know it's most unusual to come before you so right, and then skipped mm. immediately to the finale or something. It kind of included like three little snapshots of the song as a whole, and didn't stop once. There weren't any times where the band stopped. There was no discovery. It was none of that. And I'm I'm so bad with the sub names. I'm not or the subtitles that I can't mm. identify them correctly. But you guys know what I mean. Yeah. And I, I think, I think I, I like the Rio version of this, but just because of like the reaction, um, I think that that is a totally different thing. You know, that, that the crowd yelling and all that stuff. But I think um, I, I would take this version over any other version of Twenty One Twenty, even the studio version. I just think it dynamically, it's, it's his voice. So, yeah, it, the voice and the bass and the guitar, just everything is is just perfect. I think. I wonder if this was sort of you got to imagine it it was a marketing ploy to some extent where it was like uh time machine hey come by come mm -hmm. see this tour come buy the dvd because we're playing moving pictures in its entirety i i got to imagine during test for echo uh, an album that probably wasn't hugely popular um compared to like a moving pictures and during a time when it was like eek is the band done that the that anthem was was saying you know or not anthem i'm sorry I'm, I'm going too far ahead that when the band was putting the set list together maybe they were like let's do 2112 and like you said no opening band we have time to do it now let's play the whole thing and really market this thing <laughs> I, I agree because i think you know during this time it was also still not cool to like rush like in you know in a sense that now in the last you know several years it's become hip or cool to, you know, like Rush. It, you know, they've, they've gotten more mainstream kind of acceptance leading up to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, at this point, yeah, like they're, they're still just out there under the radar. Nobody's paying attention, you know, coming out with Test for Echo. That's not going to draw in the type of fans I was talking about earlier, like the, you know, the, the 70s fans. And so to a certain extent, yeah, I can, I can see how doing this would bring – all of those fans in completely yeah were you gonna say something dave uh i was gonna say i was looking at the set list and uh, yeah i i mean they do play close to the heart and they play the trees but it's almost like it's almost like okay for you old school rush fans here is something you know they played a lot of the the first set is a lot of you know it's a lot of roll the bones and it's a lot of test for echo and it's 90 stuff and then it's like Okay, okay, uh, fans from 1976, here's a huge bone that we're going to throw you. <laughs> like, get ready for this. Uh, and then, you know, the, the, the second set list is, you know, there's really nothing that old other than, you know, Natural Science, um, Spirit of Radio, Tom Sawyer, that kind of thing. So this is the, you know, like I said, beyond Close to the Heart and the Trees, this is the real big, for the early, early Rush fans, like this is the, this is the big eye-opener, I think. Sure. Quite a big bone to throw, though, too. I mean, yeah, quite it is. A big it's, not like, <laughs> it's not like, all right, we'll put Tom Sawyer in there. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's, right, it's, right. A it's, not, it's not like we're playing Passage to Bangkok this time. It's, it's <laughs> right. the whole, yeah, the whole side. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, guys, I want to thank you personally, both of you, for coming on the show and volunteering uh, to do different stages. An album I didn't, I thought I was going to have to beg people to come on and represent. But um, a lot of people showed some love for this one. So thank you both for doing a great job and coming on the show. Uh, Jeff, it's great to have you on again. And um, Dave, thank, thank you, you so much for being on for your first, first full episode. You did a great job. Thank you. Uh, guys, we'll be back next week.
we're going to be talking about Russian Rio. And as we get further down the line and closer to the present day, we're going to have more and more material to talk about. Um, so I look forward to doing that. We'll see you guys soon. Email me about this mailing list and uh, follow Jeff on Twitter. Dave, are you on Twitter? Uh, I'm not. Nope. Do not follow Dave on Twitter. Do not do that. <laughs> follow Jeff and don't follow Dave. And follow me on Twitter, at jmantis. There's a selfish plug. Uh, guys, thank you for listening. We'll see you soon. So how do you feel about the differences of the mixing quality? between counterparts test for echo and then their subsequent live album different stages they're all so different that's a true true statement (laughs) what's your favorite song on different stages i couldn't possibly choose okay of the three circular things on the cover which is your favorite they look like macaroons which color is your favorite Mm, i like the red and the blue one but you have to choose one if you can't (laughs) pick a favorite song on different stages just tell me which one is your favorite on the cover like the red one because it has like a heart on it the red one because it has a heart on it